history. A window that provides us with a brief look back into time of ancient people that changed the world. To hopefully unravel the mysteries of ancient cultures and to learn about what people believed in and would most certainly die for. Is it possible to learn from the mistakes of others who made choices based upon these beliefs of so long ago? And even accept responsibility for the horrors that they potentially inflicted upon people for generations to come? For this is the history of religions and, of course, their gods. and welcome back to the show and thank you so much for listening you know that I really do appreciate it and today is December 10th and it's 2021 and this my friends is episode 1 of season 4 so I thought that this episode would be the perfect starting point for a brand new season as we roll into a new era of Christianity in the history of it this episode is simply entitled Constantine the dawn of a new era. Commerce, empires, and universal religions. All three of these eventually brought every single human on every single continent into the global world that we live in today. Not that this process of expansion and unification was linear by any sense of the imagination or without interruptions. But looking at the bigger picture, the transition from many small cultures to a few large cultures, and then finally into a single global society, was probably and inevitably the result of the dynamics of human history. Every point in the history is a crossroads. A single traveled road leads from the past to the present. But myriads of paths, they fork off into the future. Some of those paths are wider, smoother, and better marked, and therefore more likely to be taken. But sometimes history, or the people who make it history, takes an unexpected turn. At the beginning of the 4th century of the Common Era, the Roman Empire faced a wide horizon of religious possibilities. It could have stuck to its traditional and multicolored polytheism, but its emperor at the time, Constantine Caesar. I'm sure looking back on a destructive century of civil war, seems to have thought that a single religion with a clear doctrine could help him unify his ethnically and religiously diverse empire. Now he could have easily, in fact, chosen a number of different contemporary cults to be his national faith, such as Manichaeism and Mithraism, the cult of Isis, Ishtar, and Hercules. Of course, he also had Zoroastrianism at his disposal, and the strange cult of Judaism, and even Buddhism. They were all available options to him. So why would he have opted for the cult of Jesus? Was there something in Christian theology that he found attractive in comparison to his Roman sun god, Sol Invictus? Were they similar enough for him to consider, could Jesus simply turn into the new Roman sun god? Or perhaps 
there was an aspect to the cult that made him think it would be easier for him to use for his own purposes. Maybe he had a religious experience like Peter and Paul did with, with visions, or, or maybe even some of his advisors suggested that Christians were starting to gain adherence and it would be best to get on board with them. Unfortunately, historians can only speculate at this point. They can, however, describe that Christianity took over the Roman Empire, but they cannot explain why this particular possibility was even realized. Either way, it is easy to see why Christianity would, in fact, work for those living inside the Roman Empire. Because, one, most were already indoctrinated with the idea of a son of God who would rise up and take power. God's rising from the dead in order to take power. God's ascending on a cloud to heaven. And then, four, the idea of a preacher teaching peace and tolerance towards Romans was a perfect fit. Now, in contrast to its neighbor Judaism, that only taught condemnation towards other nations, and that they were the righteous ones under the Jewish God, and the prevailing people, the chosen people, whose Jewish king would ultimately come and rule the world, including Rome. But it's particularly important to stress that possibilities which seem very unlikely to contemporaries often get realized. When Constantine assumed the throne in 306 of the Common Era, Christianity was little more than just this esoteric Eastern cult. If you were to suggest that it was about to become the Roman state religion, you would have been laughed out of the room. It would be the same thing as if today you tried to suggest that by the year 2050, Hare Krishna was going to be the state religion of the United States. But in even in October of 1913... The Bolsheviks were a small, radical Russian faction. No reasonable person would have predicted that within a mere four years that they would take over the entire country. And in 600 of the Common Era, the notion of a band of desert-dwelling Arabs would soon conquer and expand, stretching from the Atlantic Ocean to India, was even more preposterous or conceivable. Now indeed, had the Byzantine army actually been able to repel the initial onslaught, Islam would probably today just be this obscure little cult which only a handful of experts would be aware of. Scholars would have had an easy job explaining why a faith based on revelation to a middle-aged um, Mackin merchant could have ever caught on. Now let's delve a little bit deeper into Constantine. Because there's a lot of history out there, especially when it comes down to Constantine and the Council of Nicaea. Some people believe that Jesus was an invention, or, or that the biblical canon was decided at this particular event. However, none of this is true at all. That happened much, much later. The first Council of Nicaea in 325 of the Common Era was definitely a defining movement in the history of Christianity, no doubt. But why did the council come together in the first place? Well, we touched on it a little bit in the last episode, but now I want to really dig into it. And it begins with the persecution of Christians by Diocletian in the early 3rd century. And by this time, Christianity had started to spread itself far and wide. It was by no means dominant by any measure, but it was definitely widespread versus a centralized in one location meaning that they were starting to shake things up in several different territories. 
and there were a growing number of different Christian sects as well as other cults developing throughout the Middle East, with each having its own unique and varying ideas on theology, especially Christianity as we have already discussed in several episodes. The Christian followers were still the minority compared to the followers of the Roman religions, but it was starting to cause problems for Diocletian. He has always been an advocate for uniformity in the empire. In fact, in the year 303, he ordered to have all Christian churches to be destroyed and all sacred scriptures to be burned. When an empire is threatened and crops don't grow or when disease strikes, the religious blame it on someone doing something wrong or someone not following the right religion. So Diocletian, in return, blamed the mere existence of Christians in his territory, in his empire, for these troubles. And not to mention the fact that they refused to vehemently worship the Roman city-state gods, as well as acknowledge the empire himself as a god. They were problematic. This fact alone pissed off every Roman emperor during the launch of Christianity. This would obviously upset the gods, and drought and famine would soon come. We talked about this, right? Christians refused to worship the god of the empire, as well as the city-state gods that were in charge of keeping the crops growing and and prosperous, and, and people doing well, and living life, and being healthy. The Christians refused to conform. So, here is a whole group of people not worshiping the gods and the goddesses of the region, the gods that they need to sacrifice to in order to please and receive the gifts. So Diocletian had no intentions of hurting Christians. He just wanted them and their religion to go away, or at least accept the Roman gods as well. That was always the deal. You can still worship your Jesus, but you have to worship the Roman gods as well, including that of Sol Invictus. But instead, they chose to be a pain in the ass for the locals as well as the merchants in Rome, as they also refused to to use the Roman coin that displayed the emperor's face on, on the seal. Now, Christians were not an easy bunch to get along with. Plus, politically, they fought against the wealthy and those who owned people. Although some Christians did suffer and some did die, but it was only on a very small scale that we can tell and not at the hands of the government like Christians today want to believe, or they would like you to believe, rather than at the hands of those particular locals and those merchants and neighbors and friends. Literally, neighbors and people who know each other. My crops died because of you. Now you're going to pay. Diocletian was, however, unsuccessful in removing Christianity from his empire. So they stayed and they proselytized, and they grew in frightening numbers. But some things to consider here. At this time, there was no biblical canon, no New Testament to speak of. So every church literally had their own version of their own sacred scripture. We talked about all these different ones in previous episodes, right? They didn't have Matthew, per se, in some churches. They didn't have Luke, per se, in some churches. They didn't have John, or some just had Mark. Some only had Paul's letters. Some had the ones that they put together on their own. Some would recognize the book of Thomas and reject some of Paul's letters. 
Early Christianity was diverse, and there was no way to get rid of all the scripture when different sects were calling for different scriptures. Ten years later, in 313, Constantine is the emperor of the West. The emperor of the East is Licinius. Constantine had successfully taken over the western half of the empire, and he reasoned this must have been with the help of his god Sol Invictus or perhaps all the Roman gods collectively. A few years earlier, he said that he had a vision from his god, Sol Invictus, literally the sun god, which most scholars believe that later he identified as the Christian god, Jesus, conflating the two into his one Roman sun god, Jesus, in fact, becoming the sun god. And this actually worked out well for him. At least the followers of the Christian Gospels were learning peace and patience versus war and adversity, and they were establishing themselves in numbers and spread out over three different continents. More than likely, Constantine may have thought this would help him ultimately grow his empire in other regions of the world, becoming the religion's main supporter as well as enforcer. Either way, in his mind, Jesus was simply the Roman sun god now, Sol Invictus. Giving, even giving Jesus the birth date of December 25th, which belonged to Sol Invictus, and actually assigning some of the most popular pagan festivals and holidays in his name to the new sun god. Gentiles were easy to adapt. They were familiar with these festivals. They loved them. Most just said, hey, okay, no problem. Sol Invictus has a new name and, you know, it looks like or maybe he's got a brother. They didn't know. They're still trying to figure all this shit out. Most Christians didn't even know what Jesus was by this point. They're still working it out for another 60 years. Now, Constantine and Licinius are co-emperors during this time. Yes, one of the East, one of the West. And in 313, we also saw the Edict of Milan, which was neither an edict nor was it actually taking place in Milan. But Constantine and Licinius decided to get together for a peace meeting, a truce, and they agreed to end the persecution once and for all. And the edict, which was a letter that went out to the governors in the East, declared that all religions to be tolerated, which included Christianity. Yes, there was multiple different groups of followers of this Jewish Messiah, which had very little Jewish anything to do with them by this point anyway, right? We talked about the Emianites and um, their second century fade away, if you would. But with this new founded freedom, unfortunately, by 315 of the Common Era, these Christians who were practicing peace and patience felt that they were somehow but more superior than the pagans, and they became intolerant in some of these regions. And this fallout, unfortunately, started to turn into angry mobs. You can picture them, right? Flaming torches, banging on doors, going to different um, pagan temples. But angry mobs began to assemble and started destroying pagan temples, one by one including the sanctuary of Aesculapius and the temple of Aphrodite. That was in Lebanon. Heliopolis and the temple of Serapis in Egypt was also destroyed. Pagan priests were murdered in their temples, sometimes along with their congregations, we are told. 
This whole idea of Christian supremacy probably began at the moment that the leader of the government made it legal and then started supporting it over the others. This should have been a learning moment, right? But at this point, Constantine made the decision to make Christianity Rome's official state religion and Jesus as a deity at the Council of Nicaea, replacing his current Sol Invictus God, the Roman sun god. Ultimately, Jesus became Sol Invictus. And if you're looking at the essay, flip to page 697, and I included a picture of the, a bust of Aphrodite. It is, it's literally, literally a bowling ball-sized marble sculpture of her face. And on her face, the Christian mobs carved in with the chisel and hammer the Christ of Jesus, starting from the top of her forehead and ending down at the tip of her nose with the cross beam going over her forehead. So take a look at that, and you can also pull up the vandalized bust of Aphrodite. So pretty messed up, right? But at this point, Constantine became 100% invested in this cult. And he began to move money around from out of the pagan temples and then to the new Christian church. And then bishops began to see the wealth and the power that is involved, as, you, as we discussed previously in different episodes, where church bishops were insisting on having the same power as kings. They were kings. And by many attributes, they even had that same power as emperors within the church. They were God in the flesh. Then by 356 of the Common Era, the Christian emperor, Theodosius, he made the practice of paganism punishable by death. Heathen philosophers were murdered. Hypatia of Alexandria, she was dragged from her chariot in the middle of the street, taken to a Christian church where she was stripped, raped, beaten, and skinned alive with oyster shells. This mob of Christians pinned her down on the doorstep of the Christian church, using oyster shells to literally peel the skin from her face. The new Christian cult was definitely making their statement loud and clear that there was no room for any other gods or any other religions for that matter. Now that we have examined some of the forged texts of early Christianity and observed several groups of early Christians who produced these as well as other texts, we are able to consider in greater detail the conflicts that arose among these groups and to reflect on the strategies that proved effective in their struggle for dominance. The outcome of these interesting Christian battles was significant. The group that emerged as victorious and declared itself as orthodox determined the shape of Christianity forever for prosperity, determining its internal structure, writing its creeds, and compiling its reserved or revered text into sacred canon of scripture. Had things turned out otherwise, not just the Christian church, but all of history would have been quite different. The victory of the Proto-Orthodox Christianity in its quest for dominance left a number of indelible marks on the history of Western civilization. One of these, none has proved more significant than the formation of the New Testament as canon of Scripture. 
And to be sure about this, the development of a church hierarchy was very important to this measure. But there are numerous denominations today with a wide range of different church structures. The formulation of the Orthodox Creed was significant as well. But in some churches, new creeds had to replace the old ones. And almost no one has weekly creedal studies to discuss how the Nicene affirmations can make a difference in their lives. The New Testament is another matter. It is accepted and read by millions of people all around the world and is understood by most Christians to be the inerrant word of God, the inspired scripture, the ultimate basis for their faith and what they practice and how they practice. Even for Christians who stress tradition as well. In common Christian understanding, these are 27 books given by God to his people to guide them in their lives and understanding and how to get to heaven versus burning in hell for eternity. So as you can imagine, it comes as a bit of a shock to most people, only to realize that the church has not always had the New Testament and hadn't had it for centuries. But the Christian scriptures did not descend from heaven, as some Christians would like to believe, a few years after Jesus supposedly died. Whether it was in the year 90, during the time of, time of genius before the Common Era, or whether it was in the 30s or in the 40s of the Common Era. The books that eventually came to be collected into the sacred canon were, in fact, written by a wide variety of different authors over a period of 70, 70 to 80 years, in different places for different audiences. Meanwhile, other books were written in the same time period as well, some of them even by the same authors. Soon thereafter, the church saw a flood of books, also allegedly written by the earliest followers of the Jesus story, and forgeries would show up in their names, names of the apostles produced for decades and even centuries later after the apostles themselves were long dead and buried. Virtually all of this other literature has been destroyed, forgotten about, lost, or perhaps hidden. Only a fraction of the early Christian writings came to be immortalized by inclusion into this sacred canon, if you would. But why were these 27 books included, and not any of these other books? Who decided which books to include, and on what basis? Nobody knew who the authors were, and when. Now, it is one thing for believers to affirm, on theological grounds, of course, that the decision about the canon, the books themselves, were divinely inspired. But it's another thing to look at the actual history of that process and to ponder and understand the long, drawn-out arguments over which books to include and which ones to reject. The process did not take a few weeks or a few months or, or even a few years. It took centuries. That means hundreds, literally hundreds of years. And even then... There was no unanimity, or, or, nor was God ever involved in the selection process. Men living and breathing, white European men sitting around a table and voting on what was heretical and what was not. Which ones did they like? Which one moved them? Which one was the, sending the current message of their day? Can you imagine that there were 
Definitely some hands raised up high in the air rooting for the gospel of Thomas. But as we learned before, in this particular organization, if you didn't like the outcome of a vote, well, you can either leave or be excommunicated like Arius was and his colleagues when it came down to figuring out how to sell the entire Trinity idea. Now, to begin our understanding on the formation of the New Testament canon, it would actually do us well to set the context first and then start at the end. Because most of the books of the New Testament were, in fact, written in the middle of the first century of the Common Era. From the earliest letters of Paul, sometime in the late 40s to the mid to late 50s, and then Peter, too, widely thought to be the final book of the New Testament, written sometime around 120 of the Common Era. And then the controversies that we have been examining and talking about to date, for the most part, to the 200 years that would follow. But even at the end of this 200-year period, there still was no fixed New Testament canon to speak of. But the first Christian author of any kind to ever promote, encourage, or advocate a New Testament canon of our 27 books and no more or no less, was Athanasius, the 4th century bishop of Alexandria. And this comes in a letter that Athanasius actually wrote in the year 367, over 300 years after the writings of Paul, who was our earliest Christian author. As the Alexandrian bishop Athanasius sent in an annual letter to the churches in Egypt, which were basically under his jurisdiction, the purpose of these letters was to set the date of Easter, right? Which would represent Jesus' um, resurrection. But it was actually the pagan celebration of spring equinox by invoking the goddess of Ostara. But this was not an established date, you know, that was well advanced like in our modern calendars today. So the way that it was done is it would be announced each year by the church authorities. And this one was actually Anathasius. And he used these annual festal letters to provide pastoral advice, as well as setting these particular dates, including Christmas, and Easter, and these other pagan holidays that were conveniently um, handed over to Jesus. And he'd also use this, these letters, these festal letters, to counsel his churches. But in his famous 39th festal letter of the year 367, he indicates, as part of his advice to his churches and in his territories, the books that his churches were to accept as canonical scripture. And he first goes out to list the books of the Old Testament, including the Old Testament Apocrypha, which are only to be read as devotional literature, not as actual holding any canonical authority. Then he names exactly the 27 books that we now have as the New Testament today, indicating that in these alone the teachings of godliness is proclaimed. Let no one add to these. Let nothing be taken away from them. Numerous scholars have unanimously accepted that this letter from Anathasius represented the final end and closing of the canon, and that from there on out, no more disputes about which books were to be included. This is it. No mas. But there were continued debates and differences of opinion, even in Anathasius' own home church. For example, we're told that the famous teacher of the late 4th century Alexandria, Didymus the Blind, who claimed that Second Peter was actually a 2nd um, century forgery, and, and that it should not be included in the canon. 
Also, Didymus quoted other books, including the Shepherd of Hermas and the Epistle of Barmas as scriptural authorities. Going somewhat further down the line of Christian history, take a look at the early 5th century in the Church of Syria. They finalized their own version of the New Testament canon. And, like they should have, they excluded from it 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, because they were blatant forgeries, the book of Jude, and the book of Revelation, making a canon of 22 books rather than 27. And then we have the church in Ethiopia, eventually accepted the 27 books named by Anandasius, but added four others not otherwise widely known was the Synodos, the book of Clement not referring to um, one or two Clement that we've talked about in the past episodes, and also the Book of the Covenant and the Didascalia, for a total of 31 books in their canon. Other churches had yet other canons that they deemed as sacred as well. And so when we talk about the final version of the New Testament with quotations over my head, well, guys, there never has been a complete agreement on the canon throughout the entire history of the Christian world. However, there has been some agreement throughout most of the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox and Protestant traditions that the 27 books that were named by Athanasius are the New Testament. But even so, the process did not come to a definitive conclusion through an official ratification. Say, at a church council, you know, calling for the purpose. None of that happened. There was no official church-wide pronouncement of the matter until the Council of Trent sometime in the mid-16th century, which, as a Roman Catholic council, was binding only by Roman Catholics. But by then, the 27 books were already set in motion and as scripture. So, for example, the canon of the New Testament was ratified by widespread consensus and acceptance, rather than by official proclamation. But still, by the beginning of the 5th century, most churches in the Christian world, you know, agreed on its contours. So the New Testament here, inspired by God, right? The men who are inspired by God, the inherent word of God. We're not seeing this now after what we've already talked about, right? How did the process begin, and why did it take so long to get resolved, if in fact we can consider it even resolved? How did Christian leaders decide which books to include, and what were the motivating factors? What was the impetus? God changing his mind on which books to include and which ones not to include? God influencing forgers to create books underneath other apostles' names that had been dead for centuries? Not, understand, not understanding how this works, right? But we've already seen something of what motivated the formation of the canon, at least in part, right? Given the nature of Christianity from the outset, as a religion that stressed proper belief and that required authorities on which to base that belief on. Literary text very soon took on unusual importance for this religion. The apostles of Jesus, of course, were seen as authoritative, authoritative sources of knowledge about what Jesus himself said and did. But apostles could not be present everywhere at once in the churches as they were scattered throughout the empire. Apostolic writings, therefore, had to take place of an apostolic presence. 
So the written word became a matter of real importance. However, there was another motivation behind the formation of a sacred canon of scripture. And it starts long before the Christian mission to go out and establish churches. In some sense, the Christian movement had a canon of scripture at its very beginning, prior even to the writing of any apostolic texts. They were all Jews, and they fully accepted the authority of the books that came to be included in what Christians later would call the Old Testament, or the Old Ways, or perhaps the Old Covenant. However, if Jesus really existed as an earthly person, and even had earthly followers, like the Gospels claim, he would have been teaching them the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, this is not to say that the Hebrew canon of Scripture had already reached its final form in Jesus' day. It appeared, on the contrary, that the 22-book canon, now accepted by Jews, was itself in the process of development, not to be completed until the early 3rd century of the Common Era. Even so, virtually all Jews of Jesus' day accepted the sacred authority of the first five books of what is now the Hebrew Bible, known as the Torah, or the Laws of Moses, and sometimes called the Pentateuch, which literally means the five scrolls. Now, many Jews accepted the sacred authority of the Hebrew prophets, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the others, the gang, along with some other writings, such as what we get in, in Psalms. But in an early Christian tradition, Jesus is called a rabbi, meaning teacher, teacher of scripture. The Christian writers even have him enter into disputes with his opponents, the Pharisees, over the proper interpretation of the laws of scripture, such as what it means to honor the Sabbath. Now, when someone asks him how to have eternal life, he replies that, well, he must keep the commandments, and then lists some of the Ten Commandments to illustrate the point as seen in some of the most Jewish Gospels, the one known as Matthew, written around 85 to 90, as you can see in Matthew 19, verses 17 through 19. But the previous Gospel that we've talked about numerous times, Mark, who writes sometime right after the Josephus Wars of the Jews, placing us right around 76, 78, Mark wrote to the Gentiles while condemning the Jews. Very interesting. Now, Matthew, he's obviously correcting Mark here, saying, no, 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 we're not condemning the Jews. We're still keeping to the laws of Moses. I don't know where you're going with that. Matthew actually does a lot of correcting of Mark. Mark comes from the Pauline school of thought, right? Forget the Jews. Forget the old laws. We're going after Gentiles. Now, when asked about the key commandments of the law, he responds by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that you should love thy Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, and strength. He quotes Leviticus 19.18, that you should love your neighbors as yourself. And also from our most Jewish author, Matthew, in 22, verses 34 through 40, these are not the commandments that Jesus, or Matthew for that matter, invented. He was merely quoting from Scripture, as we've discussed in previous episodes regarding the Gospels. He even appears to rescind the laws of Moses and some of the so-called antithesis of the Sermon on the Mount. 
He does so in order to bring out what is in his mind, talking about Matthew here, in Matthew's judgment, or his Jesus' judgment, and what their true meaning and intent is. So, for instance, the law says to not murder. Well, he has Jesus say, hey, don't be angry. The law says not to commit adultery. He has his Jesus say, not to lust. The law says, take an eye for an eye, which was borrowed from the court of Hammurabi, anyway, in 1776, before the common era. And then he has Jesus say, turn the other cheek, which we confirmed was also borrowed from a first century philosopher and pacifist that lived during Matthew's time. Seen in Matthew 5, 21-48. The deep intentions of these laws for Matthew, a.k.a. speaking for Jesus, are to be followed, not simply for their surface meaning. Matthew wanted his Jesus to see the laws as a direction from God about how to live and how to worship. So you need to understand, the earliest followers of Christianity during Paul's time, during that mid-40s all the way up to the mid-50s, perhaps even the end of the 50s of the common era. They were law-observant Jews, already possessing a collection of scripture even at the beginning. This is also true of later Christian authors whose books eventually came to be included in the New Testament. Paul, Matthew, and Luke, and the author of Hebrews, and most of the rest just quote Jewish scripture as authoritative text for the life and the worship of the Christian communities that they were addressing. Now, these authors, they quote the scripture in their Greek translation, mostly coming from the Septuagint, because their readers spoke in Greek. But Mark, as you recall, he borrowed much from Targums that were loosely written translations from Aramaic to Greek that were taken from the Septuagint to place words on Jesus' lips, as well as his actions, his deeds. That's invention. But for most early Christians, this translation had as much authority as the Hebrew Bible did. Additionally, these Christians saw Jesus, not as the founder of this new religion that cast aside the old, but as the fulfillment of the old who brought something new to the understanding of God that was already anticipated in the Hebrew Bible. Now, if you recall, Jews were anticipating the come of a Jewish Messiah to relieve their pain and their suffering some 150 years BCE in the form of a Jewish king and warrior to destroy their oppressors. At the time, it was the Seleucids. And of course, when then interpreted later on as the Romans as occupation set in into Judea, later which led to the series of Jewish-Roman wars. But most Jews, of course, they rejected the notion that Jesus was the fulfillment of ancient prophecies concerning that of the Messiah. And so, in turn, rejected the Christian message and the Christian movement. It is not what Scripture said from what we get from Paul and then the subsequent Gospels. Not at all. This itself provided some motivation for early Christians to devise their own sacred authorities, to separate themselves from the Jews who refused to accept the authoritative interpretations of the Jewish scripture pronounced by Christians. Especially when you think about Paul is telling everyone that you don't have to practice any of the Jewish traditions. Forget about it. 
All you got to do is love Christ and worship him only. And to Mark, who does the same thing, but virulently chastises and condemns the Jews in a veiled, hidden manner for their role in the destruction of the temple and its cult and the city as well. As we know, through Josephus, millions of Jews died over the course of seven years, from 66 to the year 73 of the Common Era, finally when the rebel movement ended. Now, the movement in Christianity towards establishing a distinctively set of authorities, it can be seen heavy in the New Testament, where the authors, unknown authors, has Jesus himself present his interpretations as authoritative, meaning that they were to be accepted as normative for his followers, who thought of them not only as right and true, but as divinely inspired, as told through their unknown authors. And then after Jesus' death, the authors wanted his teachings, not only his interpretations of scripture per se, but everything that he taught, were granted as sacred authority by Christians even though they're coming from the words of unknown individuals. In fact, it was not long at all before Jesus' teachings were, wild, were widely thought to be as authoritative through Jewish scripture themselves. We see this movement already in the writings of Paul, who on several occasions quotes Jesus' teachings to resolve ethical issues in his church. And as you know, Paul is our first Christian writer in the Christian movement. And so, whatever Paul says to resolve his issues in his church, as we've already learned before, Paul only quotes from Scripture for what Jesus would say or what Jesus would do. Pulling from Psalms, pulling from Isaiah, pulling from um, any of these other particular Scriptures that were already available to him in the Old Testament. And outside of that, he simply makes up based upon the way that he feels about the situation. So Paul is teaching from the onset everything from Jewish scripture. Now in some circles, the teachings of Jesus were not simply on par with scripture. They far surpassed it. We have seen this already in the Coptic Gospel of Thomas that we talked about earlier on, which were a collection of 114 sayings of Jesus the correct interpretations of which is said to bring eternal life. However, in proto-Orthodox circles, it was not Jesus' secret teachings, but those found in apostolic authorities that were seen as authoritative, right? Unless it comes from an apostle, it is not authoritative. And just as important as his teachings were the events that were created for his life. Accounts of Jesus' life, his words and his deeds, his death and his resurrection, were eventually placed in circulation and accepted as sacred scripture as well. At least as authoritative for most proto-Orthodox Christians, as the text of the Jewish Bible. Now, along with these authoritative accounts of Jesus' life, were the authoritative writings from apostles which were already being granted sacred status before the end of the New Testament period. And the final book of the New Testament to be written was probably Second Peter, a book almost universally recognized by critical scholars to be pseudonymous, not actually written by Simon Peter, but of one of the many forgeries from the second century. 
That's the word. Prolific forgeries being written using apostles' names that have been gone for centuries. Such as the Gospel of Peter or the Apocalypse of Peter or the letters from Peter to James. But one of the striking features of this letter is that it discusses the writings of the Apostle Paul and considers them already as scriptural authority. And in attacking those who misconstrue Paul's writings, twisting their meanings for their own purpose, the author actually says in Second Peter, and I begin quote, Our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, saying such things as he does in all his letters. Some things in them are hard to understand, which the foolish and unstable perverts leading to their own destruction, as they do with the rest of Scripture. Second Peter 3.16 So by grouping Paul's writings along with the rest of scriptures, this author has clearly made a significant move. Because now apostolic writings are already being revered and placed into a collection of sacred books as scripture. And so by the end of the New Testament period, we have a movement towards a mutual New Testament canon consisting of the words or accounts of Jesus and writings of the apostles. And speaking of this as a movement, we should guard against being overly anachronistic. Because it's not that Christians at the time were all in agreement on the matter, as we have seen time and time again throughout this particular messianic movement, and it is not that anyone thought that they were in a movement at the time that was heading somewhere else. Nobody saw this happening. They just thought that they were in it at the time. These authors understood that there were certain authorities that were of equal weight to the teachings of Jewish scripture. And they had no idea that there would be eventually a 27-book canon coming in the future. But looking back on the matter from the, the distance afforded by the passage of time, we can see that their claims had a profound effect on the development of proto-Orthodox Christianity as eventually some of these written authorities came to be included into the canon of Scripture as well. In a nutshell, all of the New Testament authorities, that of being Paul, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, James, Peter, and John, all these particular books from the epistles and the Gospels replaced and became the new Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the other prophets of the Old Covenant. But probably every Christian group of that second century and the third centuries ascribed authority to written texts. And each group came to locate that authority in the status of the author of the texts. These authors were thought to be closely connected to the ultimate authority of Jesus himself, who was understood to represent and to be God. Literally, the God of the New Testament, the God of the New Covenant, the God of the New Era, breaking away from Judaism. But differing groups tied their own views to apostolic authorities in different ways. The Ebionites, for example, claimed to present the views advocated by Peter, who was Jesus' closest disciple and James's brother. Then the Marcionites claimed to present the views of Paul, which he received by special revelation from Jesus himself. Then the Valentinian Gnostics 
also claimed to be also claimed to present Paul's teachings as handed down to his disciple Theodos, the teacher of Valentinius. Now, the proto-Orthodox Christianity, on the other hand, claimed all of these apostles to be authorities, Peter, James, Paul, and many others for the matter. But not all of the books used by proto-Orthodox churches were written by apostles, or in some cases even claimed to be. In fact, the four Gospels that eventually made it into the New Testament that we've talked about are all anonymous, written in the third person about Jesus and his companions. None of them contain a first-person narrative. One day when Jesus and I went to Capernaum, for example, <laughs> Capernaum, I don't know why I chose that one, or claims to be written by an eyewitness or a companion of an eyewitness. Why then do we call them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? We have no idea who they are. Because sometime in the second century, when the proto-Orthodox Christians recognized the need for, the need for apostolic authority, they attributed these books to apostles, Matthew and John, and close companions of the apostle, Mark and the, the secretary of Peter, and Luke, the traveling companion of Paul. Most scholars today have abandoned these identifications and recognize that these books were written by otherwise unknown but relatively well-educated Greek-speaking and writing Christians during the second half of the first century, between 75 CE all the way up to as late as 130 CE. I know that we've talked about it over and over and over again, but just as a reminder, when we talk about the dating of these books and why, we can clearly see when they were written. And if we're supposed to base the time of Jesus, well, depending on, on who we're asking, if we're asking the Gospels, we're talking about that he was born sometime around perhaps 6 BC and died sometime between either 30 or 33 CE. So depending on who you're asking, the Babylonian Talmud places it sometime around 100 years prior to that for his, for his ex execution, actually, and during the time of Janius. Now, when we start off with looking at Paul, we know that it's pre-60s of the Common Era, just because it makes too many references to actually the temple cult in business happening. So we know that the temple has not been taken down yet. There's no concern of the city being leveled. So other than just being friendly to Romans and to Gentiles, we can clearly place Paul between the 50s and the 60s. But when we start talking about the first gospel, which we know is Mark, because he pulls so much, he builds characters off of, the Wars of the Jews by Josephus, which wasn't even in publication until the year, I want to say, 76. So probably 76 to 78, Mark produces his gospel and it's released. And go back and listen to those particular episodes if you want to know more about why we know that he pulled from Josephus. He, it wasn't about fulfilling prophecy, not at all. He built scenes, narratives, and characters from off of this particular um, real-life historical event. So that places it, so obviously if we're talking about living apostles, these guys would either be already dead by the year 76 to 78, or be really, really, really old, and probably senile, but either way. And then we move on to Matthew. We know that Matthew follows next because he pulls so much from what Mark writes in 76, but he adds in so much other material. Material that was probably from um, a lost gospel is what most scholars believe, or perhaps some of an oral tradition. Um, 
probably even some of it coming from some of these other groups, such as, you know, we talked about the, you know, growth of Ebionites and Marcionites and Gnostics, and not to mention a plethora of other Messianic groups that were out there that were just human dudes trying to start a fight with the Romans or bring peace with Romans. But these stories were part of an ongoing tradition that were basically snowballing and building and building and building, and eventually miracles were built in. But Matthew writes sometime between 85 and 90. And then Luke steps in. And we know that Luke's writing sometime between 90 and 100 because he makes it clear that he's pulling from another piece of Josephus' work, Jewish Antiquities, which doesn't get released until, like I think, 93. And he also borrows much from Mark, but he borrows a lot from Matthew's um, narration, but changes what he doesn't like. And then finally, John, the Gnostic, Obviously, second century Gnosticism plays into this, which helps us date John and um, some numerous other um, pieces of clues that he gives us in his gospel helps us place him um, at least 115 to 117, but as late as 130, because he makes references to the second um, Jewish-Roman war that took place from 115 to 117, and we'll talk about that in another episode later. But it's understood. You know, it's important to understand when these guys were writing just to tie in the apostolic message and the apostolic authority, applying these names to these gospels to give them credibility. Now, there were other books that came to be accepted as authoritative that weren't anonymous, but were actually homonymous. That means that they were written by someone who actually had the same name as a well-known person in Christian lore. Whoever wrote the New Testament book of James, for example, gives no identifications that he is James, the James, the brother of the Lord. And quite the contrary, actually. He says nothing at all about a personal tie to Jesus. And additionally, the name James, which is my name, by the way, was a very common name used in the first century. And there are at least seven guys named James that are found within the New Testament alone. In any event, the book of James was later accepted as apostolic on the grounds that the author was the brother of the Lord, although he never claimed to be. But the final decision makers liked the message. In fact, the name John was common as well. Even though the Gospels and the Epistles of John do not claim to be written by someone of that name, the book of Revelation does. See, Revelation chapter 1 Verse 9, but the author does not claim to be the John, the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' apostles. In fact, in one scene, John has a vision of the throne of God surrounded by 24 elders who worship him forever. Pull up your Bible hub, Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, as well as verses 9 through 10. Now, these 24 elders are usually taken to refer to the 12 patriarchs of Israel and the twelve apostles combined. But the author gives no indication that is what he's seeing himself. Probably then, this was not an apostle. And so the book is homonymous, later accepted by Christians as canonical because they believe the author was, in fact, Jesus' earthly disciple. Moreover, they actually liked the message that it was conveying. Yet, other books are pseudonymous, forgeries by people who explicitly claim to be someone else. Included in this group is almost certainly 2 Peter, 
Probably the pastoral epistles of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. Quite likely the Deuteron Pauline epistle of 2 Thessalonians and Colossians as well as Ephesians, and possibly 1 Peter and, and Jude as well. Throw into the bucket of being 2nd century forgery. But why would someone claim to be a famous person from the past? As we have seen it, it was principally in order to get an audience to hear his or her views. And these authors' views were not merely heard. Guys, they were accepted, respected, and granted authority, and included ultimately into the sacred scripture canon. Were any of the books that made it into the New Testament actually written by the apostles of Jesus, if he was an actual person, given during the time of the Gospels placing him? Well, as we've seen, critical scholars are fairly unified today in thinking that Matthew did not write in the first Gospel, instead of Mark, as I just discussed just a few minutes ago, or that John wrote the fourth, or that Peter did not write second Peter and possibly not even one Peter. Probably wasn't even Peter at all. Maybe it was a George. No other book of the New Testament claims to be written by one of Jesus' earthly disciples. Probably because Jesus was never actually an earthly person. Only a cosmic being, according to Paul. There are the books from the Apostle Paul. that 13 go by his name. And at least seven of which are accepted by nearly all scholars as authentic. But if by then, by apostolic, we mean book actually written by an apostle. Most of the books that came to be included in the New Testament are not apostolic at all. Most are forgeries in the name of apostles and written too late to be considered written by any of the apostles, especially provided by the dating given to us by the Gospels themselves. But if the term is taken in a broader sense to mean book that contains apostolic teachings as defined by the emerging Proto-Orthodox Church, then all 27 books pass muster. But now we have to return to the question of how, when, and why those 27 books of our New Testament today became part of the canon, and the others did not. As we have seen, the process was already in motion by the end of the New Testament period. But it did not come to any kind of closure until the final part of the 4th century, nearly 300 years later, at the earliest. Why did it take so long and what actually drove and inspired and pushed the process to happen in the first time? Now, it may seem odd that Christians of earlier times, while recognizing the need for authoritative text to provide guidance for what to believe and how to live, and you know that they did not see the need to have a fixed number of apostolic writings, or a closed canon for that matter. But there is no evidence of any concerted effort anywhere in Proto-Orthodox Christianity, or anywhere else for that matter, to fix a canon of scripture in the early 2nd century when Christian texts were being circulated and described as authority. In fact, there was a wide range of attitudes towards sacred texts among the Proto-Orthodox Christians of this early period. And I can illustrate to the point by considering views found in three Proto-Orthodox authors from about the second quarter of the second century. It is difficult to assign dates to these writings with any, you know, exact precision, 
but it appears that the letter of Polycarp to the Philippians was actually written by 130. Then the shepherd of Hermas, sometime between 120 and 140 of the Common Era, and the sermon known as to Clement, sometime around 150 of the Common Era. All three are proto-Orthodox productions. The later two, in fact, were occasionally accepted as canonical scriptures by the Orthodox Christians of later times. Both are included in early manuscripts of the New Testament, but they represent widely desperate understandings of sacred textual authorities. You've got to understand how they were pushing authority, authoritative texts. Just saying Paul, James, Peter, Mark, Matthew, Luke, John gave a credibility and authority to say whatever they wanted. Somebody in the third century could say no messages from Jesus as long as it has that stamp of approval by having an apostolic name on it. That is why we see the forgeries that we do, and so many. Now, in terms of Polycarp's letter, it's a virtual patch of citations and allusions, drawn from the writings that eventually came to be included in the New Testament. Nearly a, a hundred such quotations in a letter of 14 relatively brief chapters, in contrast to only about a dozen from the Old Testament. On one occasion, Polycarp may actually refer to the book of the Ephesians as scripture. But the interpretation of the passage is highly debated. And sometimes he'll even refer to an explicitly or an explicit authority where he'll actually say, remember what the Lord taught us? like as if he actually knew or like he was even there. But in most instances, however, Polycarp simply uses lines and phrases that are familiar from the New Testament writings and without any attribution whatsoever, especially from the works of Paul in Hebrews and First Peter and the Synoptic Gospels. So were his letters the only proto-Orthodox texts available to us from that period? We might think that here we could detect the steady movement towards ascribing authority to earlier writings, those that came to be included into the New Testament. But more than likely, there was not a steady movement in the direction, and it's suggested in the Shepherd of Hermas, which probably reached its final form after Polycarp's letter. This is a much larger book, longer than any book that ever made it into the New Testament. And so one might expect a correspondingly a greater number of quotations and allusions. On the contrary, even though the book is filled with authoritative teachings and ethical exhortations, there is only one explicit quotation of any textual authority to be found. And that is, as it turns out, is a now lost and unknown Jewish apocalypse called the Book of Eldad and Modad. Some readers have suspected that Hermas knew and was influenced by the book of James and possibly by Matthew and the Ephesians. But the arguments are rather tenuous. In contrast to Polycarp, Hermas does not appear to have any investment at all in sacred textual authorities or any emerging canon or even scripture for that matter. Now, in the third example, we find yet another problem that we're confronted with because neither Polycarp's feast nor Hermas' famine is found. And in, the, and in the mid-2nd century sermon that's known to us as To Clement, where he makes several statements that have several verbal similarities to some of those found in the New Testament epistles, such as 1 Corinthians as well as the letter to the Ephesians. 
but it does not quote these books as authorities, but with relatively greater frequency, it does quote the words of Jesus, where he starts every sentence by saying, well, the Lord said, but it does so without attributing these words to any of our four written gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. What is possibly the most remarkable thing is that out of the 11 quotations that he gives us from Jesus' teachings, five do not occur in the canonical gospels at all. And one of the most intriguing that we have reads like this, and I'll begin to quote, For the Lord said, you're expecting that though, right? You will be like sheep in the midst of wolves. But Peter replied to him, What if the wolves rip apart the sheep? Jesus said to Peter, After they are dead, the sheep should fear the wolves no longer. So to you, do not fear those who kill you and then can do nothing more to you. But fear the one who, after you die, has the power to cast your body and its soul into the lake of hellfire. And we get that in 2 Clement chapter 5, verses 2 to 4. End quote. Just like most other Christian production, the source for this odd, strange, and weird dialogue, it's actually unknown. Some believe that it may have derived from the Gospel of Peter. But what is even more noteworthy for this particular purpose is the saying that's found in 2 Clement chapter 12, verse 2. Now listen to this one, beginning with the quote. For when the Lord himself was asked by someone when his kingdom would come, he said, when the two are one, and the outside is like the inside, and the male with the female is neither male nor female, end quote. But this is very much like a saying that's found not in a canonical gospel, but in the Coptic gospel of Thomas. Remember the 114 sayings? Well, this is number 22. And listen to this quotation. <clears throat> they said to him, Shall we then, as children, enter the kingdom? Well, Jesus said to them, When you make the two one, and when you make the inside like outside, and the above like the below, and when you make the male and the female one and the same, so that the male not be male, nor the female, then you will then be able to enter the kingdom. End quote. So what makes this interesting to me is, with this little injection of um, sayings of Thomas, far from supporting anything that Polycarp is doing and showing a reliance exclusively on books that were to become part of the official canon, and far from supporting Hermas and overlooking earlier textual authorities, too Clement appears to accept a wide range of authorities, right? Especially sayings for Jesus even some that were not finally sanctioned by being included within the canon of Scripture. So that's absolutely bizarre. Now, I think that's really interesting to try to, you know, think about and let it soak in. When we talk about sayings for Jesus, and especially coming from supposed church fathers and popes and bishops, that words for Jesus, the, the literally, the words being placed on Jesus' lips, are not just coming from Gospels and from Epistles, but also from Gospels, Epistles, and Acts and Apocrypha that was deemed as heretical. Let that soak in. That's really bizarre and it's really interesting. 
why they would use that source material. And so, by the mid-2nd century, the questions of the canon were still unresolved, as you can see, especially in the proto-Orthodox circles of Christianity. The winners, the victors, and the ones who were the calling all the shots, calling which Christians were heretical and which ones were not, only to be utilizing wicked and heretical sources. This conclusion coincides nicely with other findings in this particular study. Remembering back a few, several episodes in the, you know, on this particular study, Christians and Rosas accepting the gospel of Peter, as does their bishop Serapion. Remember him? And only to reject it later. Some Christians accept the apocalypse of Peter or Paul's letters of three Corinthians of scripture. Others do not. Some see the epistles of Barnabas or one Clement is canonical. Others do not. Revelation and the epistle to the Hebrews are matters of constant debate. So this should now move us into what those motivations were for establishing the final sacred canon. And there can be little doubt that the events of the second half of that second century created a demand for proto-Orthodox canon of scripture. And chief among the motivating factors were the prophetic movements such as Montanism from within the proto-Orthodox circles in opposition to heretical forces outside of these circles. According to Wikipedia, Montanism is known by its adherence as the New Prophecy, and it was an early Christian movement of the late 2nd century, later referred to by the name of its founder, Montanus. Now, Montanism held views about the basic tenets of Christian theology, similar to those of the proto-Orthodox Church but it was labeled as heresy for its belief in the new prophetic revelations. The prophetic movement called for a reliance on the naturalness of the Holy Spirit and a more conservative personal ethic. And parallels have been drawn between Montanism and the modern-day movements such as the Pentecostalism, including the Oneness Pentecostals and the Charismatic Movement. But before Montanus converted to Christianity, he was, in fact, a high priest of the cult of Apollo and claimed that he was receiving messages from the pagan gods in Revelation. Either way, his version of this pagan Christianity through Revelation, it grew wide and it spread fast, fast enough to put a fire under the asses of the proto-Orthodox leaders. Now, Montanism, it originated in a province of Anatolia and it flourished throughout the region, leading the movement to being referred to as elsewhere as Cataphrygian, meaning it was from Phrygia, or simply as Phrygian. And they were sometimes also called Papusians, after Papusa, their new Jerusalem. Sometimes the Papusians were distinguished from other Montanists for despising those not living in the new Jerusalem of Papusa. But the Montanist movement spread rapidly to other regions as well, especially in the Roman Empire, before Christianity was even generally tolerated or even legal to practice. It persisted in some isolated places well into the 6th century. Either way, the effect of Montanism we've already seen. So as long as proto-Orthodox Christians like Montanus and his two female companions could claim to have these direct revelations from God, 
there were no visible constraints to prevent other heretical Christians from making the same or even better claims. Can you imagine? But even with Paul, it was the same damn argument from the onset. Paul had to have revelations in order to separate himself from the others. Even though the Montanists, Tertullian among them, keep in mind, were orthodox in their own theology, their activities had to be prescribed. And so the recognition of possible abuses, exacerbated no doubt by the failure of the Montanist prophecies of a, an imminent end of all things, led Christian leaders to more certain authorities. These were written authorities, solid and fixed, rather than inspired prophecies directly handed down from the Spirit, fluctuating and impermanent. They were written authorities, the Gospels, of course, grounded in the truth transmitted from Jesus to his own apostles. And they were writing in permanent validity, not just in the living moment of a fourth century revelation. So you see how that works? More than anything, the interactions with heretical forms of Christianity forced the issue of canon and the decision to get one together as soon as possible. In this, no one was more important than Marcion. Remember we talked about him? To our knowledge, the first Christian of any kind to promote a fixed book of canon, a canon of sacred scripture. In his publication of modified versions of Luke and the ten Pauline epistles, it is possible to evaluate Marcion's effect by considering the views of two of his proto-orthodox opponents. One writing just as he was beginning to make a large impact, and soon writing afterwards. So hopefully that helps you understand why there was such an urgency to get together the proto-orthodox scripture of canon, right? Why, why was there such a race? Competition, guys. Competition. Marcion already had his version of Christianity that was out there and doing really, really well and filling seats in congregations and gaining territory. And then you also had this Montanus that was receiving revelation directly from God himself that was also growing rapidly. There's only so much that you can do. You got to act fast and you have to condemn those who you are deeming as heretical. You need to get some support behind you, some financial backing. Justin Martyr was one of the most productive proto-Orthodox authors of the second century. Still preserved are two of his writings, The Apologies, Intellectual Defense of the Faith Against Its Pagan Detractors, and a work called Dialogue with Trifo, in which he tries to show the superiority of Christianity over Judaism, largely by appealing to a Christian interpretation of those Jewish scriptures. And his other writings were lost, however, including an attack on heresies of his day that was later used as a source for Irenaeus. Now, despite his frequent appeal to authoritative text, Justin Martyr shows no inclination towards a fixed canon of New Testament scripture, at least in any of this surviving text that we have today that we're aware of. 
But he does quote the Gospels at least over a dozen times, but he typically refers to them as memoirs of the apostles. Now, he does not name the authors of these books as any kind of authority whatsoever. and The books appear to derive their authority from the fact, to Justin its fact, that they actually recall the words and the deeds of Jesus. Now, moreover, it is not altogether clear whether these quotations derive from the separate Gospels, as we have you know, them from some kind of Gospel harmony that Justin or someone else in Rome, perhaps, had created by splicing the available Gospels all together into one long, complete narrative. And as quotations often used a phrase from Matthew and a phrase from Luke, combining them in a way not found in any other surviving Gospel manuscript, but what's even more noteworthy here is that his loose use of the Gospels as authorities is the circumstance that Justin never quotes the Apostle Paul. Ever. Not even once. It is probably because of the Marcion effect, perhaps, who was also active in Rome while Justin was there. They were contemporary. Used Paul almost exclusively. So that Justin associated, actually, Paul with the heretic Marcion. But even though Justin speaks of Marcion's influence already extending throughout the world, as seen in Apology, chapter 1, verse 26, his real impact did not come until actually much later. And so it's interesting, actually, to contrast Justin's relatively casual use of written authorities with what one finds in Irenaeus, who was another well-known proto-Orthodox author who also opposed heresies by quoting authoritative texts, but now, some 30 years after Justin, there is a clear notion of canon, at least so far as the canon of sacred gospels is concerned. But in a famous passage, Irenaeus laments the fact that heretics not only fabricate their own gospels, but that they rely on just one or another of those in the canon to justify their, their views. He says the Ebionites, use only the Gospel of Matthew because, hey, it was the most Jewish. And those who separate Jesus from Christ, such as the Gnostics, use just Mark. And then the Marcionites only used Luke, and the Valentinian Gnostics used only John. So for Irenaeus, this curtailment of the Gospel is as bad as the forgery of false texts. And I'll begin quote. It is not possible that the Gospels can either be more or fewer in number than they are. For since there are four zones in the world which we live, and four principal winds, while the church is scattered throughout all the world, and the pillar and the ground of the church is the gospel and the spirit of life, it is fitting that she should have four pillars, breathing out immortality on every side. And he writes that in Against Heresies, chapter 3, 11, 7. And so, as you see, just as there are four corners of the earth and four winds, there must be four Gospels. Neither more, neither less. What is worth observing here is that whereas Justin had a very loose notion of sacred authority, rooted in unnamed, unspecified, and unnumerated memoirs produced supposedly by Jesus' apostles, in Irenaeus, Writing 30 years later, we have a fixed set of named, specified, and enumerated Gospels. So, what separates Irenaeus and Justin from each other? Well, one thing that separates them is 30 years of Marcionite Christianity. 
30 years of a brand of Christianity proposing a canon of just 11 edited books that told their view of their narrative of Jesus and their theology. It's also worth noting that whereas Justin never seems to quote Paul, Irenaeus does, and he does so extensively. Now, some scholars of theology have thought that this was an attempt on Arrhenius's part to reclaim Paul from the heretics. So, because he was a favorite not only of Marcion, but also of Gnostics. And so, if this view is right, it might make sense the Proto-Orthodox canon had to include the forgeries of 1 and 2 Timothy, as well as Titus, along with the ten letters known to Marcion. For nowhere in the New Testament is there a more proto-Orthodox Paul than in these forged pastoral epistles, with their stress on election of worthy men as bishops and deacons, and their opposition to false and baseless mytho or, uh, mythological speculation, as seen in 1 Timothy 1.4, as well as 6.20. Here is a forged Paul for a proto-Orthodoxy forging ahead seeking to overcome all heretical opposition. Now, given these motivations for forming a set canon of scripture, how did proto-Orthodox Christians go about deciding which books to include and which books to include into the canon? Well, one of the best ways to follow their line of reasoning is to consider the earliest surviving canonical list that we have. And it's called the Muratorian Canon which is basically a fragmentary text that has been subject to considerable debate in recent years. Now, this canon is basically it's a list of books that its anonymous author considered to be part of the New Testament scriptures. And it's named after the 18th century scholar L.A. Meritori, who discovered it in a library in Milan. And in 1740, Meritori published the manuscripts that contained the list, not so much to provide access to various documents that it contained, which are principally treaties of several 4th and 5th century church fathers, but in order to show how sloppy the copyists were in the Middle Ages. This is super important, how sloppy copyists were of the Bible in the Middle Ages. And in a treaty of Ambrose, for example, the scribe inadvertently copied the same 30 lines twice. And what's worse, the second copy of these lines differed from the first line in about 30 places. At least one mistake per line. Who knows how poorly the scribe worked when we don't have his own copy which to correct him with. In any event, the Muratorian canon is part of this poorly transcribed manuscript that we have. So most scholars actually date the manuscript and its ill-suited scribe to the 8th century. And the text is in Latin, truly awful Latin, even worse than my high school Spanish, but it is a translation of an original Greek. And then the debates of recent years actually concern the date and the location of the original. And the common view of the matter since the days of Muratori has been that it was written somewhere in the vicinity of Rome and in the second half of the second century, possibly during the time of Hippolytus. Right? And recent scholars have tried to argue that the text is better located in the 4th century, somewhere in the eastern part of the empire. But the arguments have not proved altogether compelling. And the beginning of the text is lost, unfortunately.
I'm not sure how these things come apart like that. Do people steal certain pages and want to keep them from memorabilia? But there can be little doubt, however, about the book it initially described, given the way that the fragment itself starts. And I'm going to begin a quote. And the quote says, At which nevertheless he was present, and so he placed them in his narrative. The third book of the gospel is that according to Luke. End quote. And then the author goes on to describe who Luke was and then to speak of fourth of the Gospels, which is that of John. And this list, in other words, begins by discussing the four Gospels, the third and the fourth of which are Luke and John. And it's fairly clear that it began by mentioning Mark and Matthew as well, the later of which only elusively referred to in the partial sentence that begins the fragment. So, the Miratorian canon, it includes all four of the Gospels that eventually made it into the New Testament today, and no others. None of the other 40-some Gospels, Acts, and Apocalypses that we actually have in our possession today that were rejected. Now, after discussing John, the canon then names the Acts of the Apostles and then the Epistles of Paul, mentioning seven to seven churches. The Church to the Corinthians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, the Galatians, the Thessalonians, and the Romans, two of which, the Corinthians and the Thessalonians, the author tells us Paul wrote twice, and then four to individuals, the Philemon and Titus, and two to Timothy. Now, this can, in other words, it includes all the 13 Pauline epistles, including the seven to eight second century forgeries that we are pretty certain are forgeries. It explicitly rejects, however, the epistle to the Laodiceans and one to the Alexandrians, both of which it claims were forged in Paul's name to further the heresy of Marcion. So these, it indicates in a memorable image, cannot be received into the Catholic Church, for it is not fitting that gall be mixed with honey. Then the list proceeds a list of acceptable epistles, such as the Epistle of Jude, the two epistles of John, the Wisdom of Solomon, a book that obviously did not make it into the New Testament that was um, actually found in the Quamran Scrolls, so it would have been Old Testament, and the Apocalypse of John, the Apocalypse of Peter, indicating that some Christians just were not willing to have these read in church. And it maintains that the Shepherd of Hermas, however, is okay. It should be read but not in church as scripture, since Hermas wrote, Very recently in our times in the city of Rome, while Bishop Pius, his brother, was occupying the Episcopal, chair of the church of the city of Rome. In other words, the shepherd is a recent production, as it literally says, near to our times, and is not by an apostle, but rather the brother of a recent bishop. Hence, it cannot be included inside the canon. Then the list concludes by mentioning other books that were to be rejected, where he says, in quotation, We accept nothing, whatever Arsonus or Valentinius or Miltelides, who also composed the book of Psalms for Marcion, together with Basilides, the Asian founder of the Montanus books. And then there the list ends the same as it began, in mid-sentence. When the totals are all added up, this proto-Orthodox author accepted 22 of the 27 books that eventually made it into the New Testament. Not included are Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, 
and one of the Jonania pistols. He accepted two of the three that we have, but he does not indicate which two they are. Um, in addition, he accepts the wisdom of Solomon and, and um, provisionally the apocalypse of Peter. And then finally, he rejects some books, either because they are heretical, the Marcionite forgeries of Paul's letters to the Alexandrians and the Laodiceans, and other forgeries attributed to Gnostics and Montanists, or because they do not pass his criteria for canonicity. So that brings us to, what are those criteria? Well, as it turns out, they are the four same criteria used across the broad spectrum of proto-Orthodox authors of the 2nd and the 3rd centuries. For these authors, a book was to be admitted into proto-Orthodox canon of Scripture if it was, and only if it was, a ancient Proto-Orthodox authors maintained that a canonical authority had to have been written near the time that they thought Jesus might have also lived, being of the 30s. And part of the reasoning is that which we have seen throughout our study, the suspicion of anything new and anything recent in ancient religion, where antiquity rather than novelty was respected. Now, to be sure, that Jesus' character was not ancient, even from the perspective of the 2nd or even 3rd centuries. But part of the value of antiquity is that it took one back to the point of its origins. And since, it's, since this religion originated with Jesus, for a sacred text to be accepted as authoritative, it had to date close to his day. And so the shepherd of Hermas could not pass muster in the Muratorian canon because it was, relatively speaking, a recent Christian production. And then B, it has to be apostolic. An authority had to be written by an apostle, or at least by a companion of an apostle. And so the, the Muratorian canon, it accepts the Gospel of Luke, because it was supposedly written by Paul's traveling companion. But it was not, or Luke was not a traveling companion with Paul, because Luke was written well after Paul was already dead and buried and rotting in his grave. And then John, along with the writings of Paul. But it rejects the forgeries that were in Paul's name by the Marcionites, those seven or eight books that we talked about beforehand. And we saw a similar criterion in the case of the Gospel of Peter. Initially, it was accepted by the Christians of Rosas because of its apostolic pedigree. Once it was decided that Peter could not have written it, it was ruled out of court and thrown away and deemed as heretical. And similar arguments transpired over books that did make it into the New Testament. And then we have the Apocalypse of John, or the Book of Revelation, for example. It was widely rejected by Proto-Orthodox Christians and its leadership, especially in the eastern part of the empire during the first four centuries of the church, who argued that it was not written by the Apostle, and it could not have been written by the Apostle. And then the book of the Hebrews, on the other hand, was not accepted by most Western churches because they did not think it was written by Paul, more likely a predecessor of Paul or someone trying to write in his name, as we talked about before, the reasoning behind that. And eventually, each side persuaded the other that these books were written by apostles. In both cases, as it turns out, the skeptics were right, and both books came to be included anyway. And then see, it had to be Catholic. Books had to enjoy a widespread usage among established churches to be accepted into the Proto-Orthodox canon. In other words, canonical books needed to be Catholic. The Greek term for universal, right? 
Hence the waffling in the Muratorian canon over the status of the Apocalypse of Peter. This author appears to favor the book, but he recognizes that other authors in the Proto-Orthodox community do not accept it, for reading in the church anyway, as scriptural authority, as opposed to such devotional material that would just be okay but not included as authoritative. The one reason that some of the shorter Catholic epistles had such difficulty making it into the New Testament, as we talked about 2 and 3 John, 2 Peter, and Jude, is simply because they weren't widely used. They weren't popular. But eventually, they were judged to have been written by the apostles, for one reason or the other, and the difficulty that caused their relative disuse was actually overcome and admitted anyway. And then that brings us to D. It has to be orthodox. Well, of course it does. And it's the most important criterion for proto-orthodox Christians. Deciding on the canon had to do with the book's theological character, its content, its message. To some extent, in fact, the other criteria were mere handmaidens to this one particular. If a book was not orthodox, it obviously was not apostolic. Obviously, that is, to the ones who were making the final decision or the judgment to add it or not. Or ancient, and must have been forged recently. Or Catholic, in that most of the other Orthodox churches would have had nothing to do with it. So to return to Serapion's evaluation of the Gospel of Peter, how did he know that Peter had not written it? It was because the book contained something that looked like a Docetic Christology. And obviously, Peter could not possibly have been writing such a thing. This may not be how the issue of authorships are decided by historical scholars like Carrier today, but it did prove to be a significant factor among the Proto-Orthodox. And so, the criterion of orthodoxy is clearly in the foreground in the Muratorian canon, where the Gnostics and the Montanist forgeries are excluded, as are the Marcionite forgeries in the name of Paul since one cannot mix gall with honey. The debates over the contour of the canon raged on long after the creation of the Muratorian list, and sometime in the late 2nd century. Almost all of the Proto-Orthodox eventually agreed that the four Gospels, Acts, the 13 Pauline Epistles, including the forgeries, one Peter, and one John, should all be included. But there were extensive disagreements about other books as well. For some of the books, such as the shorter Catholic epistles, the debates were relatively muted, and not many people were all that concerned about those. But there were other books, such as the Letter to the Hebrews that we've talked about several episodes ago, right? Because only a cosmic Jesus is discussed in it, following that Pauline Docetist um, Christianity. And the revelation of John, of course, generated a considerable amount of disagreement. And these were large books, guys, and it mattered whether they were to be considered canonical or not. So, for instance, Hebrews. Was Hebrews' apparent claim that those who had fallen from grace, those who have sinned, had no chance in hell of restitution or to be accepted as divinely inspired teaching? Seen in Hebrews 6, 1-6. Was, was Revelation's teaching that Christ reigned here on earth for 1,000 years? Revelations 20, verses 1 through 3. Should that be taken seriously? 
the public debates over these books tended to focus on authorship because of this. Did Paul write Hebrews? We don't think he did. Most don't think he did. Did John the son of Zebedee write Revelation? We're pretty sure that he did not because of the late dating. And also he doesn't claim to be. But the substance of these debates was over doctrine. Can we accept such stringent ethical views as Hebrews or such potentially crass millenarian views as Revelations? And then what about the Apocalypse of Peter then? Or the Epistle of Barnabas? What about those? Why not accept those in? Because these issues were not quickly resolved, it is evident by later writers standing in the Proto-Orthodox tradition, writing a century and a half after the Muratorian canon, for example. Now, Eusebius, you remember him, Eusebius shows how debates over canon were still very much alive during his time. And at one point of his ten-volume work, Eusebius states in his intention is to summarize the writing of the New Testament, as seen in Church History, chapter 3, um, 25.1. So to do so, he sets forth four categories of books. First, he calls acknowledged books, meaning those books that were accepted by all sides within the Orthodox tradition. The only one he is concerned with at this point, obviously. And the four Gospels and Acts and the 14 epistles of Paul, including Hebrews. One John, one Peter, and if it really seems right, he says the Apocalypse of John. Now here some scholars have noted Eusebius undercuts his own categories, since the Apocalypse is one of his acknowledged books, is not universally acknowledged. But Eusebius goes on to say that we shall give the different opinions about the Apocalypse of John at a proper time. End quote. Now, his second category, it involves books that are disputed, meaning writings that may be well considered canonical, but whose status is in debate. And he includes in this group um, James, Jude, Second Peter, and two and three John, as they were dubious, very questionable, and they still are, and should not be included because of lack of authorship and their late dating. Eusebius then goes off and he names books that he considers as spurious, a word that typically means forged, right? But in this context, it appears to mean inauthentic, although sometimes considered canonical as well as inauthentic, right? We've, we see this, and we see this in today's collection of books. But these include the Acts of Paul, and recall what Tertullian said about the book of Paul and Thelka as claiming them or deeming them as heretical, remember? because of their particular um, message, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Epistles of Barnabas, and the Didache of the Apostles, and the Gospels according to the Hebrews. Now, somewhat oddly, Eusebius is also including in this group, if it seems right, the Apocalypse of John. And it's odd, because one might expect it to be listed under disputed rather than spurious. And then finally, Eusebius provides a list of books that are classified to him as heretical. The Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, and the Gospel of Matthias, and the Acts of Andrew, and the Acts of John. With regard to these books of category, Eusebius comments, and I will begin the quote. To none of these has any who belonged to the succession of ecclesiastical writers ever thought it right to refer in his writings 
Moreover, the character of style also was far removed from the apostolic usage, and the thought and purport of their content are completely out of harmony with the true orthodoxy, and clearly show themselves that they are forgeries of heretics. End quote. These books are not, in other words, Catholic, apostolic, or orthodox. But it was another 60 years, back and forth arguing, hard-fought debates, and within the proto-orthodox camp, before anyone came up with a definitive list of books that were to be included into the canon that matched our list of books that we have today, as also found in the famous Athanasian letters of 367. Even the powerful Athanasian could not settle the issue once and for all on his own, as we have seen. But his list corresponded well enough with what most other Orthodox Christian leaders of his day were saying, that it finally did triumph. The greatest Orthodox theologian of antiquity, Augustine of Hippo. Though his, his weight behind the list and pushed its acceptance at the Synod of Hippo in 393, we no longer have the text of the proceedings of the conference. But we do have the third Synod of Carthage, held for years later, which summarized the earlier proceedings that we can look at today. And so the canon appears to be settled in North Africa of all places. But you got to understand, the church in Rome still needed to be consulted on the matter. And in some parts of the church, it was settled somewhat differently. But for those within the Orthodox tradition, the tradition that stands at the root of the most forms of Christianity, familiar to us today, obviously, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant, the matter was, for most practical purposes, resolved to them. Proto-Orthodoxy had triumphed, and it was simply working out some of the issues at the margins. So to be sure, the theological debates of later centuries were at least heated and in the eyes of their participants, as monumental as anything that ever happened to them before. Even if to our eyes the issue became increasingly um, circumscribed, and the differences between the combatants increasingly minute. But these later debates could all presuppose and build on the outcome of the disputes of the earlier Christian centuries, as proto-orthodoxy became orthodoxy, and the theologians moved forward to refine their views. But the historical significance of the victory of the proto-Orthodox Christianity can scarcely be overstated. The form of Christianity that has emerged from our conflicts of the 2nd and the 3rd century, it was destined to become the religion of the Roman Empire. From there it developed into the dominant religious, political, economic, social, and even cultural institution of the West for centuries down all the way to the present day today. Christians living in the midst of these conflicts could not have imagined how important their outcome would be for the shape of the Western civilization. The repercussions are still felt today, though, in ways that even we may have difficulty understanding. So let's try to imagine. Throughout this entire series of episodes, We've been trying to hypothesize what it may have been like if one of these other various factions of Christianity became the victorious one, the winner of the internal struggles in battles and popular opinion. 
If the Marcionite Christianity had gained control, would people still ask, Hey, do you believe in God? Or would they ask, Hey, do you believe in the two gods? And would anyone except for scholars of antiquity ever hear of the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and John? Would we have an Old Testament? How would the social and political relations of Jews and Christians over the centuries, how would they have been ultimately affected? Would the Christians who rejected the Jewish God and all things Jewish feel a need to polemicize against and attack the Jews? Or would they simply ignore the Jews as not presenting any real competition to their own claims of knowledge of the other God, who saved them from the evil creator, Yahweh? Would anti-Semitism be worse, or would it be non-existent? Or imagine this. What if the Ebionite Christians gained control, popularity, and the wealth, and everything that we talked about, the support? Would Christianity have remained a sect of Judaism? Would Christians today worship on Saturday instead of Sunday? Would they keep kosher? Would these Jewish Christians try to convert masses of people to their message of salvation and then require the men to be circumcised? We can probably say with some certainty that if some of the other sides had won, whether Marcionite, Ebionite, or some form of Gnosticism, there would have been no doctrine of Christ as both fully divine and human. Let that sink in. There would have been no doctrine of Christ as both fully divine and human. And as a consequence, there would have been no doctrine of the Trinity. That's a wrap, and I even launched it a few days earlier. I think my commitment was going to be December 22nd. Look at us. It's an early Christmas Festivus present to all of you heathens out there, and my believer listeners, if I have any. But um, anyway, I hope that you enjoyed the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this little mini-series, again, of the creation of the Trinity and the creation of the New Testament, the need and the... uh, urgency, I guess, to get it done, and the the players involved from Athanasius and Ignatius and all these different people, Um, and Constantine, right? I think he was everything to the Roman Catholic religion, and um, and probably some things that you knew about and some things that you didn't that kind of add to your knowledge of, um, or your wealth of knowledge, excuse me. So anyway, I think that's it. Um, so moving forward, I got a couple other shows that have been in the works in the, um, on the sidelines or working in the back be- behind the curtain, if you would. Um, and one thing is going to be, and I think I got two different things going on here. And I think the one that I'm going to launch next is going to be Lost in Translation. And that's basically going to really taking a lot of scrutiny, um, a lot of scriptural criticism. And taking a look again at the different um, variations of the Septuagint to the Hebrew text to the um, taking a look at the Greek text taken from, you know, just the different translations of the different Bible, right? And how our gospel writers misinterpreted um, verses from the Septuagint and then taking a look at what the Hebrew Um, version actually said. So literally lost in translation. Um, 
really trying to take an in-depth look at what the differences are between one gospel and the next, and even the things that Paul may have said, and um, kind of funny, kind of strange, kind of weird, but more than anything, it's really interesting. And, um, and unfortunately, it's a lot of stuff that our fellow Christian friends are unaware of and um, should be aware of, quite frankly, especially when they're making such um, life-making decisions based upon a religion. They should know what it's based upon, and they should know the mistakes that's you know, within it. Anyway, um, again, I hope you guys all have a great holiday coming up, and I hope you're spending a lot of great time with the family and with friends. Um, hopefully everybody's vaccinated out there. Yes, I am vaccinated, and um, I believe that's the only way out of this particular thing. Um, don't know if you're using um, misguided politics or religion to hold you back or you just don't understand but fact check everything that you're looking at anyway I hope that you get together with your friends and family and enjoy those cocktails and you know me baby I'm gonna be smoking a cigar and I'm gonna be lighting up lightening up I'm gonna be having a bourbon with that cigar and um, definitely enjoying time with all of my friends and family all right everybody ciao take care and I look forward to talking to you in the next episode